The Old Testament reading today is from Malachi 3:17 through 4:2. This is the word of the Lord. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Well, good morning again. We're continuing in our series through First Peter called Resident Aliens, the Church in Exile. Um, as we've talked about um, the strange times we're living in and how these strange times in our land um, estrange us, even though maybe we've um, been in this country or in the city our whole lives. As we read through our text this morning, I want you to see the big idea that Peter is focusing in on, which is the ministry of a priestly people. That's the title of our sermon today, the ministry of a priestly people. And Peter himself being a Jew and writing to Christians who are Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and Scythians and Parthians and all these different people, he is using the sort of framework of the Old Testament and Old Covenant and all the apparatus of Jewish religion as sort of a springboard to identify and talk about what it means for us as Christians to be the people of God. So there are three things I want you to look out for as we read through our text this morning. Number one, that newborns require nourishment. Uh, what it means to grow into a spiritual temple and living as the people of God. So look, be on the lookout for those three things as we read through our passage this morning, starting in 1 Peter 1, verse 25. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house or temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you, 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father God, thank you now for this, your holy and inspired word. Inspire our hearts this morning through the power of your spirit and convict us and convince us of its truth that we may be transformed by the truth and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the birth of my granddaughter, Charlie, has been a joyful infusion into our lives. I was going to put a cute little picture up on the screen, but I thought that was a little gratuitous. She's getting bigger every single day, and I find myself sort of impatiently anticipating her with, like, longer hair, because she's in that phase right now as a baby where she, like, doesn't have much hair at all, Uh, but, you know... You know, when she grows her hair out, she'll look, you know, more, like, girlish and cute. And, and like, I'm anticipating the time when she can walk and ride a bike and, and do all these things. And I have to remind myself, you know, that these are special times right now. She just turned eight months old. And to sort of, like, rest in this time where she is right now. But it reminded me of the fact that human beings take longer to grow and develop than any other beings on the planet. Did you know that? We spend more time in infancy, childhood, and adolescence than any other species on the planet. Almost twice as long as chimps, gibbons, and macaques do. And the reason, it is believed, is that the energy requirements of the human brain slow physical growth. We have big and complex brains. And children's brains consume so much energy that they divert glucose from the rest of the body, slowing growth. And as a result, constant nourishment for babies is a top priority. My granddaughter does this thing when she's hungry for milk, she will be fussy, fussy. And you know, and there's nothing you can do, but when she sees the bottle, she, she does that. And the bottle can be three feet out. I mean, someone can be walking towards her with the bottle. And she does this. And she's like ready to receive the nourishment. And when she, she gets it, all the crying, you know, goes away. Because infants desperately desire milk. Right? That nourishment that they need to grow and develop. And so it is a priority for their growth. It can't happen without it. And Peter wants us to see something by way of sort of metaphor and analogy of infants needing the nourishment of their mother's milk, that in the same way, we as growing believers need the nourishment of God's word, spiritual milk. And look at what he says in verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, which means that you cannot grow as a Christian, you cannot mature as a Christian, you cannot become what God intends you to become 
without the word of God. And not infrequently. Regularly, right? We eat two, three, four times a day, depending on your own sort of eating habits. We get hungry at a certain times a day, and your body gets on this cycle where you expect to eat. And most people eat every day. Maybe you intermittent fasters will skip a day. But for the rest of us, most people eat every single day, and that is the way God has designed us. And God has also designed us spiritually to consume the nourishment that he intends for us to have in the word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And Peter, the apostle, has in mind this idea of new birth, of growing children, right? This idea that you remember a few weeks ago, Peter said, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, right? And if you've been born again, that means you have sort of a new life, a new lease on life. Now, only Jesus and Peter make this statement about being born again. It's only used a couple times. You remember Jesus in John chapter 3 told the teacher of all of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And you can imagine the teacher of Israel, probably maybe in his, I don't know, 60s, 70s, a wise Jewish learned rabbi saying, born again? Look at me, man. Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus is trying to make the point that to see the kingdom of God, you cannot just have natural birth. You have to have spiritual birth. You must be born again. Now, that language has sort of fallen out of common parlance with Christians today. When I was growing up, people said it all the time. I'm a born-again Christian, right? I remember as a gangbanger in Los Angeles, growing up in the church, but, you know, through my teenage years, running the streets and the kinds of things we would do, a lot of the guys I hung out with did not grow up as Christians, they came from broken homes. I was, I think, one of the only guys, maybe the only guy in my entire gang who had a mom and dad at home. So they all came from broken homes. They were not raised as Christians. They did not have the sense of sort of conviction about sin that I did. And one day we robbed somebody, a rival gang member. That was something we did. If we caught, we caught a guy on the street and we socked him up and we punched him and he took, you know, we took his necklace and his shoes. And that's just what you know, we did in the 1980s in Los Angeles. You know, if you saw your, and I mean, that was getting off easy to get, you know, socked in the jaw and get your chain ripped off your neck. But I remember walking away feeling in my heart deep conviction. Like, man, that was messed up, you know? It just didn't feel right when I would do those things. It felt particularly cruel. And we got back to his house, my buddy's house, and I said, do you ever feel guilty about doing those kinds of things? And he, and he just kind of looked at me, like, quizzically, like, what? And I said, I feel guilty when we rob and hurt people. And he would say, Why? And I, and I remember telling him, this is probably 1988, I said, have you ever heard of a born-again Christian? <laughs> and he said, I think so. And I said, I'm a born-again Christian. And of course, in my mind, you know, I had not had this like life-changing conversion experience, but I grew up in the church and I grew up with this identity as a born-again Christian, that I was living in a way that was not true about how God saw me, Right? And it didn't feel right. I never felt right all those years I ran the street. I felt like I was living a lie, that that wasn't my true self. And so here's this idea, only Jesus and Peter use it, the idea that a new spiritual lease on life is like new birth. We're born again and we need nourishment. We need to be nourished to grow. 
or else we remain in our sort of Christian infancy. And it doesn't matter how old you are. If you starve yourself of the nourishment of the word of God, you will not grow and develop. You will not become a mature believer without feeding on the word of God. This is a, a theme all throughout scripture. <clears throat> if I neglect, right, if I neglect the word, I won't be fed. Now, you've heard people say, you know, like, how's, how's your church? Oh, it's okay, but, you know, I'm not really being fed. And here's what that can mean. It can mean that there's not faithful preaching coming from the pulpit or the church is not sufficiently challenging a person. But often it means I don't really spend any time in the word of God. I do nothing for my own spiritual health and nourishment. I've neglected God's command to feed on his spirit-inspired word, but I'd like to blame somebody else for it. That's what that means, often. Not always, but often that's what it means. I've neglected my spiritual duty to, to, to feed on God's word, but I'd like to blame someone else for it. So why do we do that? Why do we neglect the nourishment of God's word? Such a rich resource that it is, right? It's this amazing book of books, 66 books, written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, different genres, right? I mean, it's just this amazing collection of wisdom and truth and spiritual power, and we neglect it. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, number one, we think we don't need it. We think we can do life on our own, right? There is a default setting in our sinful nature that causes us to have a sort of prideful self-sufficiency, right? We don't want to need someone else to live. We don't want to rely on someone else to make it through every single day, but this is exactly how God has designed our spiritual lives. Remember, when we were talking in our series on prayer, we said that one of the reasons Jesus prayed so much is he realized his own helplessness, that Jesus himself was helpless, he recognized that in the flesh he needed the Father's strength all the time, every single day. So he prayed. And what a model for us that is, isn't it? To recognize our own need, to recognize that we can't do life on our own, that we need God's help and God's grace every single day. The other thing is, the other reason we neglect the nourishment of the word of God is we fill ourselves with so many other distractions that we have no appetite for it. Ever eat some junk food before dinner? Bag of M&Ms before, you know, chicken dinner is ready and it doesn't really hit the spot, but it sort of spoils your appetite at the same time and you regret it? I mean, I've done that a lot. Some hot Cheetos or something, you know, and when dinner's actually ready, I'm like, why did I do that? You know, it's funny, we live in America, we live in the Western world, and we have all these freedoms, and we have, a, we have the freedom to access Scripture, right? Praise God, we live in a country where the Bible's not outlawed or banned, but here's the, here's the trick of Satan, okay? And this is really, really masterful from the enemy. He didn't outlaw the Bible, he just introduced a, a million other distractions to dilute it. And so we don't have an appetite often for the Bible because we fill ourselves with so many other things, distractions. 
And we think we don't have the time or the appetite for it, but we've spoiled our appetite. And this is a trick from Satan. We haven't really tasted and seen that the Lord is good because we're filled with so much other junk, we don't think we have an appetite for it. So here's a few reasons why you need the word, why I need the word, why we need the word. Number one, scripture guides our steps, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It guides us, it directs us, it helps us make good practical decisions, doesn't it? When we think about, and by the way, as you know, we have a lot of freedom, right? We can, we can choose to sort of pick up and take a job in Seattle or, you know, move to Maine. Like, like, like God is with us in those decisions, but the word of God when it's in us and it's operating us, it leads us and guides us. And God is at work on us, helping us make good decisions. It guides our steps. Secondly, God's word directs us to wisdom. Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. There are a lot of people in the world who have no education who are wise because of the Bible. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of education who are stupid. That's true. The word of God can make a person wise. It unfolds God's light. It gives understanding to the simple. Number three, it lifts our burdens, Psalm 119, 28. My soul melts away for sorrow, but your word strengthens me. Every one of us is carrying burdens. Every one of us have things that weigh us down. We come into church every Sunday morning with cares, and you know, one, of the, one of the challenges each one of you have is to hit the pause button, because by the way, all your, all your problems and troubles and drama it's going to be waiting for you when you leave. You might as well just like give it a break for a couple hours, okay? All the bills are still there. All the drama at work is still there. All the family issues, it's all going to be waiting for you. Don't just put it on pause for a couple hours, right? But we have burdens, and the word lifts us in hope. It helps lift the burden off of our shoulders. Growing up, we used to sing a song, you know, um, many songs about laying our burdens down before the cross, right? We lay our burdens down before Jesus. He helps, lifts our burdens. Number four, the scriptures give peace, Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your word. And number five, the word of God brings joy. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You say, well, that doesn't say anything about joy. Well, look closely. Doesn't holy and righteous living give you joy and falling into sin rob you of your joy, right? I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Boy, you know, it feels good to have a, a clear conscience, to know that you've, that no matter what happens in your life, you've like walked in your integrity. Sure, we slip and we stumble, but the pattern of our lives ought to be 
shaped by scripture because we've stored up God's word in our hearts and that gives us joy. And so I wanna say this, that our capacity for joy is directly related to our tasting and our consuming and being nourished by the words of God. Just as a quick side note, I was sharing with Maribel um, years ago when we were raising our kid, kids in California, um, there was a Christian radio station called Air One, and it's like Joy FM. No, stop, you stop. Airplane mode, that's, Larry told me I should have done that. <clears throat> we used to listen to this radio station called uh, Air One, and it was like Joy FM. And uh, there were all these Christian songs, you know, and, you know, uh, but, but something happened as maybe I thought I got too slick for that kind of music. I stopped listening to contemporary Christian music on the Christian radio for a long, long time. I just kind of thought it was, a lot of it was corny. And I loved the hymns. I loved the stuff with all the deep theology. I felt like a lot of the Christian music was vague. And for years, I mean, maybe a decade or more, I have not really listened to that. And recently, I flipped on Joy FM. Now, I've seen the bumper stickers all over the place, but I was just like, I know what it is. But I flipped it on, and the first song out of the gate, I started to cry. The second song, the third song, the fourth song. And I realized how much my heart needed the hope distilled in music, you know, of the gospel. Like, like I need, how much I needed to be exposed to some of that, to that music. Even, even though, like, I'm not necessarily crazy about each one of the songs or like the musical arrangement. But, like, I need to hear people talking about God's love for us, God's plans for me, like, God's, you know, purpose, God's care for me, the hope of the gospel. Sure, it's not all super theologically precise, but like I need that. And I realized, boy, like I, I you know, I'm sort of a cynic. It's, a, it's my biggest sin. I, I just can be cynical. And maybe, maybe you're like that too. But in the same way, the word of God is this resource that we often don't give ourselves to because, you know, we think we know it. And We've read the Bible, we know a lot of the Bible, but we don't realize just how much, how frail our hearts are. We're frail, we're weak. We've not yet been glorified. We need constant encouragement in the word of God. We need to have that lifeline of hope because you know, the world at times can be dark and hopeless. It can feel that way. And the Bible keeps us close to God. This is Peter's, I have three points this morning, but I'm spending most of my time on this main point about the nourishment of the word like milk for spiritual babies. Because it's so important for us. It sanctifies and strengthens us. And there's a famine right now of the word in our society among Christians. Christians are reading the Bible less than they ever have. And what's so insidious about that is God's words are freely accessible to us. Again, all these distractions. So what can be done? Well, Paul, Peter says you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the passage he has in mind when he's talking about newborn babes desiring the spiritual milk of the word. 
He's thinking of this passage in Psalm 34 and 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The more you feast on scripture, the more do you develop an appetite for the things of God. I marvel at people who don't like sushi. I say, well, I don't like it. I said, did you have a bad experience? I said, no, I've never tried it. Well, how do you know? I don't want it. Or they say, you know, well, I got a California roll at the airport, you know, at the airport lunch counter, and it was nasty. It's like, that was your exposure to sushi? I mean, give me a break. When you taste the word of God and you encounter the living God in God's word and then experience the supernatural power it has to not just give you hope, but it makes sense of reality. It is not a version of reality. Listen, you call it the Christian worldview, God's vision for the cosmos, whatever you want to call it, it makes the world make sense. And I don't believe the world makes sense without it. And when you read the word of God, you go, oh, yep, that makes sense, yep. And you experience it to be true. Now, there are difficult things in the Bible, of course, but overall, the testimony, I think, that believers have who give themselves to the nourishment of the word is that the world makes sense. And it doesn't mean all your problems go away, but it means that you're able to function in the power of God hanging on to that constant supply of life while everything may be melting or disintegrating around you. It's a lifeline. So we can be that way sometimes. We can write off the word of God, neglect it, because we haven't truly tasted of it. We haven't really given it a chance and given us a chance to develop an appetite for God and the things of God. So we've talked about what's necessary for growth, and now we want to talk about just for a moment the purpose of our growth, which is growing into a spiritual temple. Verses four through eight, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, if you were to ask any ancient Israelite the most important place on earth, you would get a clear and consistent answer, the temple in Jerusalem. I think we have a picture. Peter's first analogy was the word of God like spiritual milk. And his second analogy is the temple of God where God dwells as a metaphor for the fact that now we are being built up like stones to a dwelling place, a spiritual house for God to dwell. I mean, look at the picture. You can, you can see the stones. Massive stones were crafted and cut. I don't know how they did it, but the ancient world clearly understood things about you know, architecture and engineering that we don't understand today. I mean, think of the great pyramids of Egypt, those massive stones. And so the picture and the idea that we are living stones for people in the first century made perfect sense. God was building something, right? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And God right now is building something. He's building a dwelling place for himself, right? 
And we are part of the edifice along with Jesus. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, this stone, will not be put to shame. You know, we call Jesus the rock, right? That's not an accident, right? The living stone. This stone is a person. It's Jesus, the chief cornerstone of God's dwelling place. The temple and its building had been replaced by Jesus. Now, when Peter writes this, the temple's still standing. It's probably about five or seven years right before the temple is destroyed in AD 70 in Jerusalem by Vespasian and his son Titus and the Roman legions. And so he's anticipating the removal of a physical temple and the replacement of a spiritual house where God is not contained in buildings but dwells throughout the entire earth in his people who he calls essentially a spiritual temple. Isn't that a beautiful image? That the dwelling place of God is not in buildings, although buildings are important because we gather together. So don't interpret that to mean I don't need to come to church, I just go wherever I want, you know, and God is with me. Well, God dwells among his people gathered in a unique and special way. That has not changed. But it's not the building of the temple any longer. It's the people of God who are the new temple. Because Jesus is the temple and we dwell and abide in him. He's the chief cornerstone. And this is a magnificent picture of how the old covenant was a type and foreshadow of things to come in Jesus and the new covenant. So think about the old covenant for a moment. Those of you who are familiar, and if you're not familiar, the old covenant had a physical ethnic people group, the chosen people, the Jews, a physical building, the temple, which Solomon built. It was destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt by Herod right before the time of Jesus. And the physical sacrifices of animals and blood and altars and the physical priesthood with their garments and vestments and their duties in the temple. And Peter takes this entire sort of reference point, the old covenant and all of its apparatus, and transfers it to the new covenant spiritually. We are the temple. We are the priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We are the chosen people, all those who follow Christ, both Jew and Gentile. The old physical elements weren't the real thing. They were temporary holders until the real thing arrived. And he says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what are what spiritual sacrifices? I mean, we're not, we're not shedding the blood of animals. What, what, what spiritual sacrifices? Well, think for a moment. Think about the things that you do that are hard, that God requires of you, that you give as a sacrifice. Overriding at times your own sinful nature to be obedient to him. Serving your neighbor, even though it's uncomfortable or inconvenient, right? These are spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Loving people who are hard to love. Loving your enemy. These are all the sacrifices that God cares about because the blood sacrifice of atoning sin has been taken care of on the cross by Jesus. That, that's, that's done. 
It's a once-for-all sacrifice, atoning sacrifice on the cross by Jesus, shedding his own blood. And we, as God's spiritual priesthood, holy people, we offer daily sacrifices of our lives. Every single day you persist in your faith. Every single day you don't give up hope. Every single day you choose to do what God wants you to do and not what your flesh wants you to do. You are offering sacrifices to God perpetually every single day. You choose to forgive people. You choose to love people. You choose to do hard things that glorify and honor God and actually are really good for you even though at the moment it doesn't feel like it. Those are the spiritual sacrifices we offer to God. And here's the main point. In Christ, we are God's people, we are God's temple, we are God's kingdom and priesthood. Whatever happens in the Middle East, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's been going on for decades now. And some people think that God's kingdom is all wrapped up in that little slice of land off the Mediterranean, but I want to tell you that that's not true. I mean, I hope it works out peacefully for everyone, but God's kingdom is far beyond that. It's global, it's cosmic. And if all of that is true, we ought to live as the people of God. Look at what Peter says in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a priestly people. And the purpose of the priesthood was to be a special possession of God in the earth. A remnant, a group of elect and chosen people in the earth pointing the way to God. That the earth and the peoples of the earth and the nations of the earth could look to for light in the darkness. That's what the people of God are supposed to be. That's, that's God's purpose all along. It was God's purpose for ancient Israel and the church is a continuation of that. It's, there's not, it's not a dissonance there. You know, the people of God, the people of God. It's the same continuous idea. And God has called us out of the world to be a special treasured possession for him to point the rest of the world the way back to him. Now, you can't be a part of this group, the people of God, unless you're reconciled to God. And God has made a way for our reconciliation just like the priest did for the people. Our high priest, Jesus, has reconciled us to God through his atoning sacrifice. It's only through Jesus that we become part of the people of God. Now, people, some would say, well, we're all God's people. Well, you know, like some broad generic sense, sure. But that's not how the biblical writers think. They think when they are talking about this idea that those who have been redeemed in Jesus are the people of God because sin separates humanity from God. And so if your sin has been removed through a final atonement, you are the people of God. And so I want to say to you this morning, if you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the one who has sacrificed himself for you and paid the penalty for your sins, and you recognize that there is salvation and no other sacrifice or no other means except his shed blood, you are the people of God. We are the people of God. It's not by merit, it's not by right, it's not because we've earned it, but it's by grace in Jesus Christ. Does that imply responsibility? Think about that. Does being the people of God mean we have a responsibility to the world, to our neighbors, to our community? You bet. We absolutely do. We don't live for ourselves. We live for God. We live for our neighbors. And even our rights have to be processed through the sort of, you know, grinder of God's purpose for us. Which means I don't slavishly or fiendishly cling to all my rights, even though I love my rights. But some rights I'm willing to let go of for the good and salvation of my neighbor. You are one of many stones God is building in his community of the redeemed, a spiritual house, a permanent and holy temple. Live like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that draws us and brings us close to your presence. The access we have to the Holy of Holies, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the only atoning sacrifice that cleanses and purges us from all filthiness and unrighteousness of the flesh and of the spirit and makes us acceptable in your sight through our brother Jesus who has brought us into your family and redeemed us. We give you thanks, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.